Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a noob and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, JG McQuarrie. Say hi, JG. Hey there, Kev. How are you doing this week? Well, I have a new love in my life, and it is a floating electrical energy being that is possessing a dead woman. So we're going to need some privacy after the end of this podcast. Okay, well, it's always good to keep those options as wide open as you can. Now, this week, uh, we're going to be discussing metamorphosis. And as always, we have to have somebody to help us along with it. So say hello, John. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm really excited to talk to you about this episode of television about a man who's kind of traveled through time. He has a kind of enigmatic companion. Uh, I can speak any language by the end of it and has a house that is clearly bigger on the inside. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this one with you. Excellent. I'm I'm extremely happy to find anybody that's excited to discuss this episode. Let's see if our <laughs> regular contributors are feeling the same way. Um, mm-hmm. But let's uh, let's do our usual. Kev, would you care to give us a summary? All right. Um, as Kirk, Spock, and McCoy trans uh, and two other guys uh, transport a, a ambassador who is under who is ill back to the Enterprise for medical treatment. They are diverted by a planet that is um, traps them there. There they find Zephram Cotrain, Cotrain, Cochrane. Ah, I can't remember. Um, and they, uh, he reveals that he's been there since he died 150 years ago. Um, he's been kept immortal by this being called the Companion, this electrical energy cloud that just kind of keeps them there. And then they just kind of talk a lot about how it sucks that they're being kept there. They try to trick the cloud once and it doesn't work. And then eventually they convince the cloud about how humans have love and the power of love. And that convinces the cloud to fully possess the now dead ambassador and for her and Cochrane to sort of live together in harmony for the rest of their now mortal lives. Well, meanwhile, the rest of our gang gets to go back up to the Enterprise. No. Regular listeners will know that normally when Kev gives us our introduction, he is very fulsome when it comes to details. And that one might have sounded ever so slightly dismissive. Now, I I don't want to read anything into that, but I think it might give us some idea of what we think of this episode. But let's let's kind of dive into it and, and see what the opinions are. So, I mean, Kev, you gave us a summary. How are you finding this one? boring <laughs> it's, it's it was hard for me to remember what little happens in this episode because it's just so inert that that seems like an entirely fair judgment uh john how did you find it i mean uh, i've i've watched some stuff in my time and look listen the last time i was on this podcast it was mary which was uh almost a hate crime and just by nature of making me watch it and me being someone that could be hated, uh, therefore it counted. I'm not sure that this fared much better. Uh, I'm really starting to worry that Kev might secretly hate me um, because both times uh, it's been a case of uh, the episode being brought to me and my God, uh, the tally is not working in your favor, buddy. Um I know, I know that you're just cutting it up, but I want to assure our listeners, this is John, what happens is I go through the list of people who know what episode they want first, because they know what episode they want when booking the season and signing guests everywhere. 
Then I go to John, who hasn't watched much original series, and say, here's what's left. What sounds like a good episode title? <laughs> and you could do research, honestly. I think I gave you like at least like a selection of a few things left over. I, I, won't, be, I won't be held responsible for my own actions. Um, listen, it, look, the, the, I think the thing that sums up this episode more than anything else is the thing you left out of your description um, mm. of the plot, which is that when they finally talk to the companion, uh, they discover that it is a woman. And it is very important that it is a woman, that womanness is innate and uh, apparently a cross-cultural thing that cannot be uh, avoided. Uh, even floating masses of electricity have it. And therefore, because it's a woman, clearly it must want to get with Zephram. And oh, God. The simple fact that I was forced to sit there and listen to that, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I, I feel like Christmas has only just been passed, but you owe me a Christmas present this year, I think, like just for making me sit through that. Well, I, I for one, have no idea what you're talking about. I think this is a brilliant uh, deconstruction of the way that heterosexual romance works. I think it's incredibly important that we've... No, that's complete bollocks. It's just a terrible, <laughs> terrible episode. It's so dull. Who cares about any of this? Um, but one of the weird things that has come out of this episode, of all episodes to choose, is this idea that kind of Zephram Cochran is an important figure within Starfleet history. You know, he's going to go on to be, well, I mean, not the actor, but the uh, character is going to go on to be in Star Trek First Contact, the Next Generation movie. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's in a way a weirdly, but I don't want to say it's a foundational text. That's probably putting too much on it. But it's just one of those things that, like, the name carries a weight in the 21st century that it couldn't possibly have had in the 1960s. And that kind of slightly deformed sort of the narrative around this episode, um, which is a shame because the episode itself is absolute garbage. And, yeah. you know, like, like the fact the character will go on to be played by James Cromwell. I love James Cromwell. He's an amazing actor, great guy. It was very nearly, uh, Oh, who almost played him? Oh, I'll come back to that. I don't care anymore. It's just Zephyr Cochran. Nobody's interested. It's just one of those things that it just... Uh, why are we supposed to care about this plank of wood? And the answer is we're never, ever given a reason. And everything that revolves around the companion and the romance between the companion and Zephyr Cochran is just so hoary and cliched and lazy. Mm -hmm. It's just impossible to invest anything into it. I, I understand the idea that they want to talk about this like universal concept of love, but it's like the worst kind of sort of Star Trek redux. And I think the whole thing with the Zephyr Cochran thing is that's kind of the best idea the episode has is plucking like a, not just a rando from 150 years ago, but a historical figure with weight and consequence it's just weight and consequence that is never explored in this episode, um, which is what's so frustrating. And from what little I know of the TNG movie he's in that I haven't seen, that isn't, it feels like an actual exploration of that person's place in history. Whereas this episode, it's just a fun fact to make things more interesting. I feel like it's a very almost like common thread to our science fiction at the time where it's just, not quite using the entire animal, but um, throwing in like a sci-fi author will seems to throw in like weird fun asides and 
facts and things like that just to like spice up the story even if it doesn't wind up relating to what the story is about i just i mean speaking as someone who's like reading a lot of like classic 40s 50s sci-fi stories recently for some reason <laughs> um but yeah this is another element of like that's just added and it's interesting but it's the least focused on element of this episode and that's kind of a problem when that's your most eye-grabbing element we are pretty early days of science fiction, right? Like, yeah. grand scheme of things, uh, you know, it, we've obviously had plenty of science fiction up to this point. It's been, a, you know, half, half a century of what you could call canon minimum. Um, but even so, <clears throat> because we kind of live in an age where, you know, half-life on everything is so much quicker uh, because of the advent of the internet and so on, uh, we're still very much in a formational period when this episode drops where a lot of tropes and stuff are still getting codified where joe averages uh, encounter with science fiction is either big canon or absolute schlock there's kind of nothing in the middle because you know you're either seeing a midnight movie or you know you're reading one of the big authors who gets actual cultural purpose a uh, purchase um so it's interesting to kind of look at the way this episode plays out and how zephram cochran is used because you're right that um, it's an interesting idea. Hey, man displaced from time. And any modern show, any modern piece of science fiction would almost inevitably make this an episode about something like getting him back to his time so that he can do the thing he did. Or, you know, he's, you know, or there is a very clear reason why it's him here in this place like and it would be one of those where you'd watch it and you'd be like oh my god this is so cliche of course they're going that way a man displaced from time or a man who's alive after he's supposed to have died therefore it obviously means xyz and it's really damning i think of this episode <laughs> that mm. like it doesn't go down that route and i'm sitting here wishing my god i wish this was a cliche <laughs> episode <laughs> at least there would be something to hold on to yeah like there there really isn't a dramatic thrust to the story like there's the tension that they're trapped on the planet but then just nothing happens for the next 40 minutes straight yeah it's 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 bizarre it's it's really bizarre i feel like the erotic thriller version of this episode where the knowing glance that cochran throws at kirk just after he flirts with uh the commissioner for the first time uh is it commissioner whatever i don't care her job's irrelevant um when he flirts with her and then he talks to kirk and he throws in this knowing glance that's very homoerotic and for a brief second i was like oh okay maybe 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 that really worrying moment isn't gonna be terrible like maybe maybe that's just the mode this episode's gonna be in and it never recovers and I feel like the erotic thriller episode where maybe it leans into that a bit more, um, that would be great. The cliche version, that would be great. The, yeah, uh, I, I don't know, just this, any number of versions where the script could have gone down any other road and been so much more interesting. And instead it picks the dumbest 1966ism. It's barely even 1966ism. It's like 1936ism. Like, my God, it's... It's just it, uh, what an what 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 an episode. Hats off. It's it's an achievement. If we're pitching alternate versions, I, I would I would go back if I was going back in time to tell Gene Alcoon how to rewrite this. 
I mean, I would just steal wholesale from misery and just have him <laughs> pretending to be in love with the creature to try to find some way to escape. Like that is like anything just to make it much more of a threat or any kind of tension that's occurring Hell, here. Even the version where he's just lying about Zip being Zip from Cochrane would have been 99 yeah. times more interesting. I think part of the thing is the artistic impulses behind this episode, if that's not too grandiose for this tedious piece of crap, um, is that, uh, you know, I think they're understandable. I think the idea that they want to try and explore some kind of concept that doesn't just rely on like pew pew battles and and kind of you know kirk having his shirt ripped and 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 you know green ladies i, I really understand why they thought that this might be an episode worth pursuing i don't want to say about i'm defending this episode because i'm absolutely not because it's so boring but it, i think the impulses behind it are understandable um but it is one of those times where you know this comes up in the podcast from time to time that you know like we say star trek is very progressive but it's not universally progressive and that's part of the problem that this episode faces like gene l coon can't get out of his own way he can't see beyond his own horizons and ultimately i think that's what what does it for this episode? I think that's what the ultimate restriction on it is. It can't see beyond its own incredibly kind of labored attempts to do something. Like there's that line, I think it's like the first or second time that Cochrane sees uh, the, the commissioner, uh, uh, Nancy Hedford. Uh, and he says, Oh, you're, you're like a glass of water to a man in a desert or whatever that line is. It's so awful mm. and like from that moment on the episode is dead like there is no getting away from the level of of kind of like reductive sexism that it's going to operate on and i can understand this idea that they want to explore like different dynamics and occasionally it works like mccoy gets a line at one point where he says essentially get over yourself like this is just like a different kind of love which makes me wonder how many alien women you know he's had the pleasure of being intimate with but hmm. it like it kind of like in that moment you can see what i think uh gene coon is aiming for like you expect something here's something else but the fact that it's different doesn't invalidate the feelings behind it that's a really great thing to try and strive for what's so depressing about this episode is how that and other than that moment it universally falls short of being able to achieve it it's it's wild because on paper, like that that line that you referred to about a different kind of love, like there is a very much an online modern obsession with that, if that makes sense. There mm. is a there is very much a subcommunity of people uh that are quite often colloquially referred to as monster blankers. I'll leave the blank out because uh, you know, this is a podcast. podcast. And, you know, I count myself uh, among them. I'm a member par excellence. And, you know, there are whole video games where it has, they have a cultural footprint because you get to date aliens. Like the Mass Effect games are beloved, mm -hmm. not partially because of the story, yes, but partially because you get to sleep with a bird man from another planet, right? Like there is, there is, it's, it's weird to encounter this idea 
in an era so primed for it to be a member of the group of people who are so primed for it and be like, my God, could you have got this worse? This is this is terrible. I, I, I'm willing to join a convent. Like, what the hell? <laughs> It's it's bizarre. It's bizarre. And like it's one of those things that TV like Star Trek that has such a clear place in time that you go back and revisit with, you know, the benefit of hindsight with modern perspective, where you are encountering people making a piece of art in a piece of time, informed by that piece of time, uh, that you have to bring your own place in time and your own experience of the world to bear on. And like, I don't know, for I, I, it, it's weird to encounter an episode that I feel like is so of the moment and yet so utterly not um, on a modern rewatch. And, you know, I, j- I almost wish it was the other way around, you know? Like, maybe, 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 maybe if everyone was a prude, but the, you know, women weren't literally just worse than a prize. Not even a prize, not even an object, just like the one woman, I should say, not even women, plural. Like, oh, it's, 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 it's nightmarish. It's nightmarish. It really is. Like, I'm think, I think back to Mary watching this, the last one we talked about um, from the first season, where, like, for all Mary's faults, and I can't believe that this episode is bringing me to say this, but at least, at least the characters were characters. They weren't just a dying woman and a electric kind of gas who was also somehow more of a character and more of a definable figure than the woman who dies that oh it, I run out I you know it's I, what do, what do you say what do you say right you just hit a hit a wall of going oh my god <laughs> and all that dying woman does is just complain the entire time and that's a kind of sexism in itself as well Okay, okay, real real question for the both of you. Mm-hmm. Gut feeling. If if the commissioner had been dying with dignity, had been taking it in her stride, would that actually have been less sexist to like do you think that would have been? I'm going to say no because I I don't think the reaction of of uh the commissioner is really what matters. Ultimately, whatever, however that character reacts to the situation, they're still just placed there for a particular plot purpose. And I think that's ultimately the problem with, uh, with Hedford, is that they don't have any kind of function beyond the plot. What the plot is invested in is Zephram Cochrane. They're invested in his loneliness, the, you know, his situation, his ache, his need to escape, all this kind of stuff. And in and of itself, okay, you can you can find a way to try and explore that character. But the, 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 the character of the commissioner only exists to reflect that. So however that character is portrayed, all that character is ever going to do, I think, is reflect that. Um, and that's not really, I don't want to ding uh, like Elmer uh, Donahue. I think that's as well as anybody could with what is really a nothing role. I think she gives a reasonably dignified performance given that, you know, it's just an incredibly sexist piece of writing. Um, But I think however that character reacted, they're always going to be sublimated to the plot of what's happening to Zephyr Cochrane. So like it might have helped, but I don't think it would ever manage to actually overcome. 
No, I totally agree. And that's kind of kind of why I asked the question because it's it so underscores like it's a miserable thing. And I think you're right to point it out, Kev. Like it, it's it's terrible that all she has to do is complain and then die. But it is such a fundamental flaw of the premise of the writing of all of how it's approached that even like I don't necessarily think that it would have been any less sexist. I think it would have just it would have absolutely been a different kind to make the 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 poor woman suffer, you know, indignity because that's a lot of women or whatever. And then she dies and gets taken over. Like, I think it would have been like a sidestep because the fundamental premise is so flawed. I think there is no saving it uh, at a premise level other than completely starting from scratch with how you approach things. And like, there are some really interesting things that you could grab onto. Like you say, JG, Zephyrin Cochran is lonely. He goes to space to die. Like that is a, Mm -hmm. there is a emotional resonant core there that I don't know. I feel like a child could have picked out a little bit better than any of the writing on this episode ever attempts to. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah. I think what's really strange here is that Gene L. Coon has been sort of the produce, one of the main producers of the show for the last, like most of the last season, like all of season two so far and a good chunk of season one. And we like, we've sort of noticed in our journey. I mean, we haven't been going production orders so has kind of been backwards and forwards, but still like, when you get two episodes that say in the production, he was giving notes, like there tends to be an uptick in quality. Like he's like, he's figured out these characters as the show has figured them out. And along with, of course, like DC Fontana, both of them have been sort of like guiding them to be more interesting and episodes be more dynamic, even when the ideas are kind of duds. And so it's weird. It's not like here, (laughs) like there's not the fun moments we've come to expect from, uh, these sort of higher ups doing the rewrites to make the characters more interesting. Instead, everyone is just so dull. Well, and the episode actually, uh, this I think is one of the worst kind of elements about it. But the episode actually goes out of its way to point out just how irrelevant, like Commissioner Hedford is. Like Kirk gets that. The, there's that exchange between Kirk and McCoy at the end of the episode where um, McCoy says, oh, but what about that war that's going on? And Kirk says, oh, I'm sure they'll find some other woman to sort it out. Like, she's even reduced to an irrelevancy in her own story. Like, the one little bit of characterization she gets earlier on is like, oh, well, I've fallen sick, and I'm kind of blaming Starfleet for that. Sorry, the Starfleet for that. Um, But, you know, like, she wants to get back. She wants to kind of resolve this situation. Um, and she's being sort of forcibly dragged away because of her, her health concerns. Um, and then at the end, like even that little tiny bit of characterization that she gets is just blown out the airlock. Oh, yeah, some other woman will deal with it. It'll be fine. <laughs> Let's all fly off and we'll do something else next week. It's so patronizing. And it really, mm-hmm. like like you said, Kev, like, like Gina Kuhn is generally much, much better at, at dealing with this aspect and 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 to see it so stark and so dismissive of of what you know the commissioner is supposed to represent it's just it's so antithetical to to what we expect star trek to be and it it jars in in all the wrong ways i had to literally rewind because 
I was expecting the end of episode zinger. And I think that line was just so, just so bad that my brain did not absorb it the first time. I just, I, it's like I knew it was coming and I zoned out and I was like, no, wait, hang on. I've missed the, 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 the Kirk quip at the end of the episode. I better go back. And then I rewatched it. And all of a sudden I'm like, no, I really did hear that. That was, what the hell? That was the zinger. <laughs> Yeah. I, uh, just absolute absolute nonsense like it, it's it's wild like you know it's uh, i i i hate to get on the soapbox about it but when the episode starts with a male doctor dismissing the health concerns of a woman yeah. even if he is overall concerned for her health she says well if i got the proper inoculations and he goes, oh, well, you're just being silly. The chances us were so low. Like, when that's in the good part of the episode, where you think it's still got a chance, it really just had no hope from minute one. And mm -hmm. it's such a bummer. It is such a bummer. It really is. Oh, absolutely. I think one, I think one of the other um, problems that this episode suffers from is that it... And this is going to sound slightly uh, counterfactual, but it's actually a really well produced episode. Like, uh, oh, I think planet... so. Much of it is great. I agree. I yeah, think, I think much of the production. I think much of the structure. I think it's all terrific. I just think none of the words actually put to page are good. It's it's so unusual to have an episode with such a bad script, which has such good production values. Like, okay, admittedly, our our planetary color du jour is purple, and they really lean into that. Um, but generally speaking, like, it's a good piece of production. Like, even when Zephyr Cochrane is like first approaching the shuttle, like he seems like a long way away. I know it's forced perspective or whatever, but it's it's a good optical effect it, it, it makes the planet look much bigger than the usual kind of like 10 meter set that we generally sort of see in star trek you know the matte the matte paintings the, later on don't quite live up to that but like that's i definitely that's agree true. I, d I definitely but, agree those early shots there's a great sense of perspective um and like i watched the original version i didn't watch the remaster with the improved effects and huh. all of the like to be honest you know, uh, I've seen a lot worse. Uh, I, some of it hasn't aged great, but like the stuff that hasn't aged great is some of the stuff that I kind of complained about when I was on Total Massacre with Kev uh, recently and we were watching Blade Runner. Like this is a good 25 years, almost 30, I think, uh, or maybe just 20 before that film. And like the, the problems I'm picking out with this episode uh, and some of the production quality were on a similar axis to the problems that I had with how that film plays now, which is for the 1960s, I think is tremendous quality. Like I, I, I can't fault it mm -hmm. at all. I, I think it for, for, for the budget that they had and how they pulled it off a plus, I think it's great. I, I think it's aged a lot better than some of the modern schlock with the, you know, much better budgets definitely will. Yeah. It's, and that's one thing I like about Star Trek design in general is just the use of color and just sort of the, the staginess of it. It makes you sort of expect staginess, if that makes sense. Like by not really trying for grounded realism, all these like very colorful planets and weird skies and 
interestingly designed like environments they find themselves in you do just kind of accept them much easier when you almost know that this isn't like real yeah the the putty on the soundstage is almost the fifth character of star trek right like right you you kind of accept it it's part of the feel and it's part of what lets you actually go like no this is they're they're going for something here this is they are they are picking a picking a thing and running with it and i think this episode does do that really well um i think the environments look great uh for for you know for the time and the budget um you know i like like we say force perspective great i even think the uh the companions effect you know i'm watching the original version and there's definitely a bit towards the end where you can see the uh, fade of the overlay move. Um, you can see see the edge of what they've overlaid uh, move with the um, move with the move with the object off the screen. Um, but like outside of that one thing, I thought otherwise. You know, sure, it's just something you know floating over a transparency, but it's it was effective for what it was, and you know there is. It does, I'll, you know, I'll concede happy accidents. It does look a lot like her scarf. Uh, and I'm, even though I read up on memory alpha that apparently that was a coincidence, I, I'll, you know, I could almost be convinced that it was kind of foreshadowing. You know, there is a sense of, there is a sense in every other part of the production of a quality episode. And like even the structure of the writing, if this was a drama about two gay men uh you know having an you know having a bizarre experience in the middle of nowhere on a vacation or something and other like played out within the same method right like they're trapped in a house they have a strange visitor um or they, they come across the you know the, the person who owns the house is is strange and they discover his weird love story like if it played out the same way same pacing same kind of you know picking apart of things i'd probably be really into it I like slow. I like methodical. I like a moment to interrogate, but nothing in the writing takes any of those opportunities that the structure um, uh, allows for, and all of the production value around it, all of the interesting set design, uh, all of the uh, good use of you know, well maybe not good use of color, maybe the overuse of color that's typical of the time that we look back on now and go, oh my god, there's actually color in this television episode. All of that ultimately just falls by the wayside because it is a scaffold to a toothpick house. It isn't actually building anything of substance. And it's a real shame. It really is. It's, yeah, it, it's, the story is just so fundamentally flawed where no character has agency or motivation for anything they do that there's, there's nothing to hang your hat on. It, this could have been like the most immaculately designed episode, most well-directed and well-paced episode but if it's just all about there is a female energy cloud here that just needs a man to make her happy for no reason inherent to either of those characters then it's it's just worthless everything just goes in the trash um, i'd just like to point out that this is in fact a story about two gay men it's just that kirk and spock aren't the focus of this particular episode <laughs> yes i mean that's what steams me more than anything else there is that moment just after cochran uh really really says things that would have had any right thinking person sock him in the mouth to the commissioner um right after he just uh, just objectifies her in the worst possible way he does turn to kirk 
And I can't even remember what he says now, which is a real sign that the episode was bad if I'm forgetting the homoeroticism. I just remember it happened. He looks at Kirk and he says something vaguely along the lines of anyone's a good sight at the moment or something like that. And there is a brief glimmer and I can't even grip onto that for dear life. Like, like, oh, just, I can't, I'm sorry. I just, what have you done to me, guys? What have you done? What have you done? There's another thing we haven't talked about, which is the whole, like, being immortal makes you bored thing, which is also just, like, brought up is very interesting and then falls completely to the wayside because they, it's just so patly resolved of, oh, they're mortal now at the end. Not, not not to cross the stream slightly, but the, the last episode, I Mud, um, there is that moment in it where Uhura briefly flirts with the possibility of immortality through a robot body. And this episode coming straight after it, like obviously production order, I don't know if they actually were produced in tandem or whatever, but in hindsight, like this weird sexist episode also now makes Uhura look like a frivolous, uh, stupid idiot for even considering the possibility of immortality because she's too stupid to get the weight of, oh, how bored you would be after just 150 years. Like, not even 150 Oh, just, oh. It, 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 this is an episode of television where every association it brings makes everything around it worse. It, it's, it's like, it's like when, if somebody in the modern day mentions Harry Potter and I immediately, like, wince. It's, it's that kind of hideous association that can't help but be formed by something so fundamentally stagnant as a concept that is just rotting on the vine. It's like the idea, the fact that Zephyr Cochran has a life outside of this episode makes me immediately skeptical of anyone involved in those decisions. It makes the Lower Decks episode with the Zephyr Cochran theme park now to me like, oh, I, maybe Mike McMahon is awful. Maybe he's a terrible guy. Because he actually put Zephyr and Cochran in an episode of Lower Decks, like, no. like, like it's that bad. I yeah, don't I know. know. I like it's it's such a like. I realize you know he gets the first contact pass right. Like you know, fine, okay. There's 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 excuses, but it's it's just one of those things where I just cannot understand taking anything in this episode and running with it because there are no legs to anything outside of a couple of cool concepts that any intelligent person would have just discarded and started from scratch with. Okay, this didn't work great. Let's just say he had a partner and maybe mention him in passing and we'll only focus on the partner. Here's the thing that like really gets me is I knew through like cultural osmosis, James Cromwell plays him in the movie. James Cromwell, I think came back for like Enterprise, the prequel show, right? Mm -hmm. That feels like something people mentioned. Yep, and then right. you have the references in Lower Decks. It's all James Cromwell. And I thought that was the only time the character had appeared in Star Trek Median is like branching off of that next generation movie. The fact that, and I know a lot about the original series as discussed just from being around Star Trek nerds and listening to them talk or watching, reading them talk on the internet. And yet still, I had no idea he showed up in this episode and rightly so that no one mentions this or thinks about it in terms of this character because what a... I have to. I can only assume that the uses of him in '90s and on Trek, this character Zephyr Cochrane, is like much more interesting and better than here because that is the only version of the character people seem to talk about. It statistically has to be right. Like, 
I mean, it, it's definitely better in First Contact. By the way, I finally remember who was meant to play him in First Contact. It was Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks was meant oh, to play him. Oh, wow. Got, dropped out, <laughs> and, and then we got James Cromwell. I love James Cromwell, but it would have been really fascinating to have Tom Hanks oh, in a yeah. Star Trek movie. That, that, that would have been something. Anyway. Um, Here's the thing. Yeah. Just on that really quick, James Cromwell would have been in Star Trek eventually. Like, that is, like, almost like a what do you call it Peter Conway or something like it is an inevitability that an actor of that stature but who's also down for genre stuff would eventually find themselves in Star Trek's orbit oh, Tom absolutely. Hanks that was your shot <laughs> <laughs> well yeah absolutely I mean that's 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 the thing like um like in uh what is it Star Trek Beyond you get Idris Elba like that's right. a big shot right that's not right. just some like i i love james cromwell i genuinely love him i think pretty much everything i've ever seen about but he's like the ultimate hey it's that guy kind of actor like right he's done 24 he's done star trek he's done like all this kind of like pulpy genre stuff he's great at that so yeah he just finished a run on succession like he will yeah. keep popping up yeah oh god he did american horror story for a sense like there's so much like he, and just he was keeps... great in it i i i love i love cromwell in american horror story i will i yeah. will you know i think he's yeah. tremendous in that um not to completely derail things and i'll just throw this out there but uh you know if you're reading the tea leaves i think idris elber is on the way out actually and it started with beyond um but that's just me reading some tea leaves about the work he's done lately um, oh yeah like, like he's the least discriminating person when it comes to choosing a project so yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah but Cromwell is, is it's it's so interesting to have him looming over this if only because he is he is a presence right like there aren't a lot of actors in the modern era I would say that have a definable silhouette if that makes sense like I think mm. there are some there are some decent character actors that you could put in like and say say this about, but I think certainly certainly in the last ten years, you know, let's let's get real broad here. Marvelization of movies, I think we've we've gravitated towards streamlining out some of our character actors and putting people who would have been leading leading men and women into those character actor roles instead, uh, because we want everything to be a little too glossy. And James Cromwell remains one of those silhouette actors, if that makes sense. He is so recognizable. If, you know, he's one of those guys that you can't even have step out of the shadows because even completely bathed in shadow, it's very clearly James Cromwell. And it speaks a lot to how little there is to hang, on, to hang a hat on in terms of Zephyrin Cochran in this episode that they could make the swing to James Cromwell because without without ruffling any feathers because this guy is such a nothing burger he is he's barely he's barely even a sub like 1970s gay porn actor right like he's he's just he's there. Oh, that's where he's, i see them i mean i mean that would be a career boost after this frankly with the performance he gives <laughs> uh, like it's just he's a slab of beef he looked kind of amused at everything he like the the most credit I could give him is that one interpretable scene where I think maybe he's say suggesting that he'd like to get off with Kurt, right? Right. <laughs> and that is the best thing I can give him, and that is me desperately searching for anything. Because like he he just like I I keep coming back to it. This is a man who ends the episode in a romantic relationship with a ball of gas. Mm-hmm. 
and there is nothing interesting to say about him. You you know an actor has had an interesting and varied career that speaks to their talent when you go on Wikipedia and the top paragraph is about their notable guest stars in TV shows in the 60s and 70s. Like, oh dear. It's just, yeah, there's just not much to his career besides this. And rightfully so, unfortunately, he's just, yeah, you're right. He's just, granted, there's not much material for him to rise to. Like I said, everyone is just, like, not even really Shatner and Nimoy and um, Kelly um, are giving, like, actual, like, fully rounded performances like we're used to from them. Oh, Kelly's doing entirely eyebrow acting in this episode, which, considering yep. he has scenes with Lennon Nimoy, is insane for a start. But, like, most of, most of, um, most of DeForest Kelly's scenes in this episode are just him going, oh, she's going to die, and then rising, raising an eyebrow. Right. Uh, oh true truly truly why he got into acting i'm sure like just uh, there's just no way for them to apply their talents here no there's no room there's there's, just nothing for anyone to do even 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 shatner doesn't get to shout very well he he tries but there's nothing there's just nothing it's it's so it's so inert it's so limp it like even Okay, like let's let me just get real technical for a second here. They land on the planet, they can't get off. Cochrane tells them that there is a field dampening electrical power. They immediately use every piece of electronics under the sun. There is nothing to this episode. It makes no sense. Like it has nothing to say. The plot doesn't make sense. The reason that they're on the planet doesn't even get a throwaway line of anything over. 200 amps i don't know like it just nothing holds together it it feels like look i understand there are a lot of episodes in a season of television like star trek the original series those are like shows like this are often my favorite thing to work through because you do get such a mixed bag and there are always episodes where by necessity of the crunch some are good and some are bad because you can, everything can't be good. And as we've seen in recent years, if you try and make everything good, it's probably all going to be bad. And it just, it is such a whiff. And I, I, I don't know, maybe there's, you can draw the Twin Peaks line of, oh, well, was TV even really good before Twin Peaks? Obviously it was, but, you know, it's like the, you know, probably fake Jurassic Park line for movies, uh, to quote another podcast. But I... It's just like one of the thing I'm I'm okay. One of my favorite second screen activities while I'm bored at work because I work from home and so I can do whatever the hell I want is to just watch reaction content on YouTube because I can zone out and not really care and come back and maybe something interesting will be happening. And I've been watching this teen go through Buffy for the first time. And she's having a great time and she loves even the bad episodes of Buffy because there's at least something fun happening in them. And I was thinking about that a lot in this while watching this episode, that like even the worst episodes of shows I really love are never this forgettable. I don't think there is anything in a show like Buffy where I would ever say, you know what, I am going to skip this episode because I know it's not very good. No, there'll be something stupid in it. I'll enjoy whatever funny scene in the middle. I'll get over myself. I don't know. Like I... 
I will probably spend the next decade of my life actually catching up with Star Trek. It will be a long project. I will watch maybe one episode a month at most. It will take me a very long time, but I'll get there in the end. And if I ever decide to start back from the start, it sucks to know that I will hit this episode and almost certainly skip it. And I put up with a lot, you know, I've played a lot of bad Japanese role-playing games, you know, I've, I've sat through some absolute nonsense in my time. And this is, it's I'm confounding. Just, it's confounding to have nothing of value to say. It I'm really so sorry is. to defeated you. Oh, it's especially confounding after like a season that's been on the whole fairly strong. I mean, like, Talk about like the fake lines, like when things are good or bad, but like this is there is great episode before Twin Peaks within Star Trek. We had a muck time, mirror mirror, and doomsday machine within the first seven episodes of the season. Six episodes, sorry. Um, like those were incredible episodes of television. And then, like even the last two, which I know JG found very distasteful. I had that same sort of like every episode Buffy's at least fun effect, where it's like cat's paw and I mud. I was like. Yeah, these are insane episodes with huge problems, but they're trying something unique and weird and stylish that, like, at least draws me in. This is such a bounce off for me. I, I, yeah, I feel the same way where it's like, I'm shocked that the show could go this, like, low. I wouldn't say it's my least favorite episode of Star Trek in general so far because of the alternative factor from last season <laughs> but this is definitely giving that and spacey a run for its money and that I'm very sorry. bottom echelon like, I, I feel very i feel very sorry for you kev knowing that you know you've got to now suck it up and watch the next episode knowing that you've just watched this <laughs> and yet the next episode is one with a great reputation so i won't go too far into it but yeah it's uh Sometimes you hit a bad patch. Um, and I think this is the part where I offer my redaction apology, John. I scrolled back through our chat, and uh, apparently this was the last one available through the game of musical chairs. You just um, bombed out. So I'm very sorry you did have to. I'm watch very this aware episode. that was almost entirely time zones, but my God, when, when musical chairs fails you, sometimes you are just sat on the floor having a meltdown because the birthday is ruined. <laughs> Well, don't worry. Next time out, we'll make sure that you get Turnabout Intruder, so everything will be made right. Hey, it sounds like that's, an Ace Attorney episode. I'm in. That's that's fine. That let 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 nobody look it up. Nobody say anything more. <laughs> We're just going to leave that there, and then you'll get the season three episode finale. That's you know that's what my you know promise what? to you. You know what? I'm almost not joking. I'm kind of down to pencil myself in there in advance. You know, yeah, let's you, go three you, for three. <laughs> You've suffered enough. <laughs> and yet, I somehow now want you to suffer more. All right, right, you're definitely doing <laughs> Turnabout Intruder. I've, I've just making an executive decision. Now. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, like, I, w I almost do want to get back to the production stuff a little bit just to have something nice to say because I do think there is some cool stuff in this episode. There are some weird flubs that they make, like the inside of the shuttlecraft having no resemblance at all to the shuttlecraft. Uh, which does also weirdly play out with Cochrane's house, which is clearly three people wide from the outside. Uh, it's it, there's some there's, like the force perspective that they're going for really fails them at some weird moments where it shouldn't have to. Um, but then you get the flip side of 
the I think actually genuinely quite cool shot of him running away where like as a modern viewer knowing that this is on a soundstage knowing that this is cobbled together out of whatever maker's putty or foam or whatever there um you know paper mache i don't know whatever material it's made out of um you know cobbled together over a weekend because they had to film by monday and there was not there was a hard out for it being ready like they do achieve some pretty good stuff like the matte backgrounds are noticeable but they're really pretty they're absolutely stuff that i would want like his desktop background sort of thing and that's that's always my mark of quality is your vista or desktop background and i think this episode pulled it off in spades like it's it has some of that vision that is so lovely about 60s science fiction and like even talking going back to mary where it was just inexplicably set on a planet that was identical to earth but so that they could use a set next door um and that was never explained even that like it's the same it's in the same mold for me it looks nice it looks solid it looks like a thing that is not like it's not lazy it is a it is it is a piece of art that you know we might have gotten better at but i've also watched some terrible cw stuff i know we haven't uh cwc's the outpost has sets uh that that show is less than 10 years old and that has some sets that look to literally be falling down in comparison to this one um it's it is insane like some of the some of the tricks that the show pulls off and like even i mud there's a lot of um uh, similarity between these sets and some of the ones in i mud uh just because you know i, I watched it uh the day before i watched this one and so it's so it's fresh in my mind like there you have the weird archways uh inside the house that are off kilter because why not it's the future why would everything be straight decisions have been made legitimate and sincere thought has gone into the production and i just and in a way where i feel like modern things modern productions really really try to avoid making those decisions for the benefit of budgets uh at their own expense and I just, I, I really do need to give it a little shout out of, for whatever sense this episode gave, if I was just looking through a screen, screen cap gallery, if you had sent me a screen cap gallery being like, hey, this is the episode we want you to watch, have a look, see if this looks up your alley, it, I would be flicking through going, hell yeah, this looks amazing, this looks great, this is going to be exact, this is going to be so up my alley, hell yeah, and, you know, it's, if if nothing else, my biggest takeaway from watching the show as a faithful fan and following along with you guys, I I really do enjoy their approach to production design. I really enjoy the, the choices that they make. And I do really think that the way that they inform the next 30 years of science fiction and like counterflip, the lessons that we've almost lost in a lot of modern stuff as we've homogenized and as Netflix's budgets have been like, no, now you get 10 episodes and so you get a little bit more money, but also we're really going to screw you on all the actual funding. So you've just got to use a, you know, warehouse in Burbank. It's the loss of a lot of the philosophy that goes into episodes like this. And that I think this episode really exemplifies uh, in terms of its production design. Like, it's such a moment in time. I really mourn its loss. I really do. 
I almost feel like we should end the discussion now while we've ended on something positive about this episode. <laughs> the rare little thing. The positive note of me mourning the loss. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's probably about as good as we're going to get. I'll, I'll concede. At least you've managed to mourn the loss of something that actually existed as opposed to the quality of this episode, which is something which has never existed. That 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 was stillborn from minute one, yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Okay, well then, I think if we're probably drawing this episode to a close, we can move to scores. Now, this might be an interesting discussion. Well, Kev, would you care to start us off? What would you like to give this episode? Yeah, I need a baseline. I need a baseline. <laughs> Let's go for a three. Ooh. Okay. Is that high? <laughs> no. Wow. Is that your lowest score ever? No, I gave alternative factor a two and space seed a three. Okay. And I was enough. thinking, well, it wasn't as insanely biz- like like we had a nice set, I guess. Is but and I'm also <laughs> comparing it against like other episodes of television, I would give a two or a one two, which is like I mean God, this didn't offend me as much as certain episodes of Ted Lasso, I'll say that much. So, yeah, it's a three still. Fair enough. Uh, John, what would you like to give this one? I think, okay, I'm going to preface this by saying I like the production design and I actually do like the structure. I think this, if this was any other story being told, the kind of slow, thoughtful approach that was, that unfortunately, this episode was lacking any thought. And so it was just slow. Um, That is something I really love in things. And so acknowledging those two good points, therefore it's a two. Well, it will come as no surprise that I'm going to have to deploy a half point here. And I think I'm probably going to go for two and a half. This is just so boring, so sexist, very difficult to care about. And whilst I do admire... The production design, I don't think it's enough to elevate it beyond just the sort of very 1960s generic rubbish that it is. So yeah, two and a half is the most I can do. And even that feels slightly generous, but okay, we're, we're going to go for two and a half and I will leave it there. And we can probably move on to recommendations. Uh, Kev, why don't you go first? What would you like to recommend this week? Uh, well, John, you said you'd rather see a show about two gay men um, encountering ghosts rather than this. So I have a movie for you about two gay men encountering ghosts. Hell yeah, uh, give it to me. Yeah, uh, All of Us Strangers, the latest Andrew... I'm going to look up how to pronounce that last name. Um, but yeah, it is a movie that's gotten a limited release in America, and I believe, hopefully in the UK as well, because he is an English filmmaker. Um Andrew, oh, this Wikipedia pronunciation guy does not help me. Andrew, hi. There we go. Um, there, yes. It is a film where Andrew Scott plays a man entering a new relationship with another man played by Paul Mescal. Um, two of the, uh, the Sad Boys Club, something they did with Joe Alwyn was like the Sad Boys Club that I've learned about through periphery Taylor Swift cultural emergence knowledge. But basically, Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal, these two lovers, only Andrew Scott starts having these, are they dreams? Is he actually time traveling? Is there something more magical going on at play? But he winds up having these encounters with his parents in the 80s. Um, His parents are dead in the present day due to a car crash that happened when he was 12. But he is going back to around the time right before they died and speaking with them in some way that is never fully explained. 
and I'm just going to leave it there. But as you can imagine, I feel like I almost already said too much, but I have to say some premise of this movie <laughs> to get out there. But yes, um, these encounters with those parents are so lovely and sweet and tender. And it helps inform his relationship with Paul Mescal as it moves forward. And this movie takes further turns from there. But it is it's an extremely emotional movie, as you can expect from Andrew High. Um, and yeah, I, I really moved me. I loved this movie. It was one of my it's one of my favorite 2023 films, and I highly recommend anyone check it out when you have the chance. I couldn't be more excited to watch it. I'm so glad that it is a good movie because it is one of those where the trailer really, like, really set me going. And I mean, I've loved Andrew High since Looking. Um, I think Looking is a tremendous piece of art, and I rewatch it sort of every couple of years as a sort of ritual. Uh, and I also love Andrew Scott. You know, I. He is one of the bright shots of uh, 2014's Pride, directed by Matthew Walkers, that's coming up on its 10-year anniversary. Yes, managed to get that in there. Um, yeah, I just, I'm really looking forward to that film. And because uh, as someone who really trusts your taste, I, I could not be more thrilled to hear such a glowing, glowing endorsement. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And John, what would you like to recommend? Okay, so mine comes with a little preface, um, because it is relevant to Star Trek, but it isn't immediately relevant. Um, and the, the, the sort of the really short version, um, to avoid going into 30 minutes here and turning this episode into a whole different subject, the really short version is that in the 90s, a bunch of Japanese role-playing game developers were really throwing anything at the wall to see what would stick, because they were having a lot of trouble making genuine inroads into the Western market. And that was very clearly the one that was about to explode. Japan had a very thriving video game market that would obviously only grow, but the evolution of it in the West, uh, the way that it got picked up was really, really starting to pop off in the 90s uh, in a big way. Uh, and you were starting to get a lot of, you know, Samuel L. Jackson, there would be movies that he was in where people would talk to him about a PlayStation. There was, there was a real real need to grab that market. And so there was a video game maker called Enix who in their many attempts to break this market, uh, one of the things they threw at the wall uh, was a series called Star Ocean. Uh, it started off, there was a game, it ended up only being released in Japan because they decided as an experiment and obviously they, they weren't as confident. So let's just keep it Japan only. Um, it was very clearly just Star Trek, but also fantasy. Uh, down to there being a um, a, a federation. And, uh, there were phases. There was what they called the Undeveloped Planet Preservation Pact. Um, you know, there, there was, so much of it was Star Trek. All of the language was Star Trek. Uh, and when they came to make a sequel, and that is what I am here to recommend, when they came to make a sequel, it was released for the Sony PlayStation uh, in, the, I think, 98 or 99. It's called Star Ocean, The Second Story. Uh, when it finally got that English English translation, the translators could not help but go, oh, we just have to use the same words as Star Trek. This is very clearly Star Trek. Um, even down to the main character basically being Wesley if he was played by Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, which is terrible, but also incredibly fun. Um, but the basic pitch of the series is, what if you took the basic science fiction approach of Star Trek, even down to... Ah, this slightly round spaceship has three nacelles. Um, what if you took all of that and 
uh, also slammed that hard into some real doorstopper fantasy type fireballs, swords, uh, curses, witches, all of that, you know, stuff that if it ever appears in Star Trek, it's something like Cat's, like Cat's Paw, where it's all just, you know, because we're doing a Halloween episode. Um, it, if you want an actual thematic uh, similarity, the uh, storybook episode of Strange New Worlds is not, not entirely dissimilar of tone. Um, aside from this being a Japanese role-playing game and therefore having some sort of essential elements that come from that. Um, but it got a huge glow-up. Uh, it got a total remake from the ground up, except for um, the original character sprites, uh, the original 2D characters sprites. They got left as is. Everything else completely redesigned in beautiful, like, miniature-style 3D. Uh, and... It really was a delight to play. I played it twice in very quick succession, um, start to finish at credits twice in a row because I was having such a good time. It really is a tremendous achievement. Um, it's a fun little bit of game preservation that they made this remake uh, of a game that is really hard to play now um, and made it such a nice version that we'll now get to live for another 20 years as the version that you can find and play. It really is. It's 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 one of those games. It's a real hidden gem. Um, it was kind of buried in the onslaught. I think it came out around the same time as Baldur's Gate three last year, so it never had a hope of really getting much cultural purpose. But it's on basically everything. Um, it's on the Switch. It's on PC. It's on PlayStation. Star Ocean: The Second Story R is the name of the remake. R for remake, and I really cannot recommend it enough. It's got a gorgeous soundtrack. It looks incredible. The story is nonsense, but hey, after what we've just watched it'll it'll be like water to a thirsty man oh awesome and it, i'm seeing it's available on switch as well so there you go yes, that's my yes you, you you will you i think you would really love it kib it's it's very fun to play and it is absolutely what if you just loaded up all of that fantasy nonsense into an episode of star trek it's i cannot endorse it enough fantastic thank you very much um i'm, I'm gonna go for uh also a fantasy game um but i'm gonna go for one which is uh the very opposite of obscure uh it's a uh, <laughs> legend of zelda ocarina of time um i've mentioned on this podcast before that i'm kind of working my way through the legends of zelda uh series having started with link to the past uh, i've done link's awakening uh, and now i've um, sort of ticked my way over to ocarina of time um i mean I, I can't give a massive uh, sort of recommendation and speech in the way that, that John just has because, like, it's Ocarina of Time. Like, it's the best game ever. Of course it is. It's an amazing thing. Like, everybody knows what Ocarina of Time is. Like, there's, there's almost sort of no point in me recommending it beyond the fact that I am coming to it as a complete noob, as somebody who doesn't really game all that much, who's somebody who uh, just doesn't have that much uh, sort of invested in it. And yet, I love love it i just absolutely love it i love the dungeon design i love the graphics i love the plot i love literally everything about it okay not the iron boots and the washer temple that's the one exception <laughs> but that's the one exception that everybody's going to say right so mm -hmm. that's fine and you know eventually they fix it and remake so that's that's all right um beyond that it's just the most charming engrossing wonderful uh piece of uh video game i playing that i think i've really ever come across i do i've read it 
higher than I rate uh, Link's Awakening or, or, or Link to the Past. I don't know. It's so hard to kind of like put a number or value judgment on these things. But like everything from the moment um, that you wake up and, and, and end up going to the Deco Tree uh, right through to your sort of the final battle with Ganondorf. It's just everything about it. It's just so glorious. The music is beyond wonderful i just adore music uh, as, as much as i've adored kind of any kind of tv music soundtracks cinema whatever it's the most brilliant thing and i just it's just so absorbent and i i i know i'm gushing i know i'm kind of not really explaining it but it's it's ocarina of time like enough said i just i just adore it so so that's my recommendation this week after the recommendation I just gave you gushing, how how could anyone criticize? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so happy you've caught up with like the canon Canonical Legend of Zelda games because they are like truly magical and wonderful. And now I cannot wait to see how you react to Majora's Mask and Wind Waker for very different reasons. <laughs> I'm I'm halfway through I'm halfway through Majora's Mask at the moment. So we'll see where that goes. It's it's interesting. I, I love that game, but it's interesting. Uh, would you believe that is one of two Legend of Zelda games I've actually finished Majora's Mask? <laughs> What's the uh, other one? I've been looking uh, uh Twilight Princess. Uh, um, uh, I'm yeah. sorry. My apologies. <laughs> I've been looking for a little project for once I finish Final Fantasy VII Rebirth when that comes out at the end of February because there's kind of nothing on the horizon. And I think I might be joining you, JG that sounds like a pretty good route to go down because Ocarina of Time really is a big gap in my uh, in yeah. my vocabulary, so to speak. And, you know, I've got my little uh, Retroid Pocket uh, that I use as a little emulation device. And I think, um, I think, I think you may have just convinced me. It's worth it. Just whatever you need to do to play that game, just play it. It's simple as that. Absolutely. Can't agree more. And just while we're talking Zelda, I'm just very curious because I think yeah, it's just so hard for me to have perspective because I played Ocarina of Time when I was like a child. It was one of the, like when we got an N64 around when it came out in 98, that was playing it and having a great time. And now it's just, it's just, I don't know. It's nice to have that sort of jadedness of like something that's so familiar. It's almost, you can't appreciate it anymore. Here are people who experience it for the first time and like gush about it. It's so lovely. And like, again, really interested to see what you think about like the direct follow-up of Majora's Mask, I just find so fascinating as like a weird artifact. And then the sort of proper next evolution in Wind Waker, I think is also just such a lovely game for very different reasons. That's just hitting a different tone and style, but still having that sense of adventure and wonder. Um, and this is my advice for the future. If you keep going down the Zelda road. If you don't skip Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword, at least brace yourself. Those are much more jankier, less fun games. I like Twilight Princess enough. I, I believe that after um, after I finished with uh, Madura's Mask, I'm going to be doing... Now, let me think about this so I don't get it wrong. Uh, Minish Cap, I think, is next. Oh, that that's a lovely little minor entry, but still very sweet and great. I love that one. I think I'm right about that. I need to check with my, my partner to be sure, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what's up next. So, yeah. But I'm loving it. It's just like the whole universe. Like, oh, like, yeah. I, get, I mean, to link it back to like the obvious Star Trek connection, but just like having this opportunity to explore a whole new realm, a whole new universe, a whole new chronology. There's like time travel shenanigans going on as well. Of course, I'm going to fall in love with that. Right. It's like, it's just such a joy to explore. And what I, I mean, love about Zelda as like, yeah. 
Yeah. What I love about Zelda as like a world and just a mythology is that unlike a Star Wars or a Star Trek where like continuity is imposed upon it, the games rhyme with each other. A select few are direct sequels, but most of the time it is really just like here is a different adventure in this sort of same palette. And it's kind of remarkable that more games don't follow that same more franchises in general don't follow that same um, thrust that like, instead of worrying so much about like how each adventure connects to the previous one, just doing variations on a theme. And that's, I think it's like very precious and lovely about Zelda is that you go into each game kind of fresh, but with familiar elements and so exploring Zelda as like a world in general. I just, I, that must also be just a very rewarding thing. Yeah, I was a PlayStation kid, so my version of that kind of fresh new worlds to explore with stories that kind of rhyme rather than directly continue was very much the Final Fantasy series, mm. um, which, you know, JG, if you're looking for a pro project in 2028 mm -hmm. when you finish it, it might be the next one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I'll have to bring one the next time I'm on the show as my recommendation just to, just to try and sell you. Excellent. Right. Before we launch a Zelda podcast, we, and we roll the credits <laughs> on this one. <laughs> uh, let's move towards our conclusion. John, do you have anything that you would like to plug? Uh, look, to be honest, I have a tendency to uh, get ahead of myself and suggest things are coming down the pipeline that I will then immediately say, no, that's not working. So rather, I will just say uh, all of my current writings are available online at johntheauthor.work. Not a lot of updates recently because COVID has killed my attention span. But uh, at the start of COVID, I did put everything up there for free. So you can just go ahead and work your way through some genre fiction in desperate need of an editor if you so desire. I'm also on Blue Sky at the same uh, name. I'm at johndeatha.work on there. And I maintain a long-running uh, video game thread that I ported all the way over from Twitter. Uh, where I do a one-tweet review of every video game, two pluses and two negatives, uh, every video game that I finish. Um, I've already got two installments in there for 2024, which is uh, categorically an insane thing for me to have done, considering it, the day that we're recording this is not even halfway through the month. Um, but if that at all tickles your fancy, please seek it out. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? All right. I'm on Blue Sky as well at Max Rubo's Roadie. And you can also listen to my other podcast that I co-host, Total Massacre, with Rowan Kaiser and uh, Carly Veloci. Um, JG's writings can be found at jgmcquarry.scott. And his other podcast is Beatles Stuffology, going through the Beatles track by tracks with Andrew Deacon. Uh, please like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast or podcast you use to help other people find it. Or follow us on Twitter at TalkTrekToYou, on Blue Sky at TalkingTrekToYou as well. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And John, thank you very much for joining us. I wish I could say it was a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm, I'm sure we'll do better for you next time. <laughs> Are we not going to turn about Intruder bit? Oh, well, yeah. All right. That, that might be a lie. Okay. You're definitely going to suffer more the next time you're here, but we'll still be very grateful for your presence nonetheless. Hurt me more. <laughs> lovely fantastic okay we will leave it there for this episode next time uh, we have a journey to babel so that'll be nice um but of course we hope you're going to join us for it but until then keep talking mm -hmm.